We all know the world has been shaken by social unrest. First a pandemic, followed by a global wave of protests. When you hear about the repercussions of growing social and economic disparities among our own people, I mean anyone can feel like losing hope. Welcome to another Epidose of Serotonin, where we understand wellness by listening to changemakers and how they serve the broader community. I'm Korean Thomas. Today on the show, how a group of people in Charlottesville, Virginia are trying to transform hopelessness into hopefulness. Growing up in Charlottesville, which is really part of the South, there are really only two types of people, and those are black people and white people, and or the haves and the have-nots. I can remember as a child when we would go and get Sunday Easter clothes. Every year, my mother would buy us new clothes for Easter. We would go to a store and we would be in the back of the store and they would bring things that she wanted them to bring for us to look at. You couldn't try them on, you could only look at them. That is etched in my memory as a child. It's like one of those things that made you realize that you were different. We lived probably eight minutes, an eight minute walk from Vinegar Hill. On the eve of the 1863 Emancipation Proclamation in the United States, African Americans made up the majority of the population in Charlottesville, Virginia. Former slaves began settling there after the Civil War, hopeful that home ownership would guarantee progress for them and their families. The neighborhood of Vinegar Hill, falling between the downtown shopping district and the University of Virginia's campus, became a focal point for African American residential and social life, as well as an economic center for Black-owned businesses. So I can remember as a child walking to the barber shop, walking to school at Jefferson Elementary School, walking to the grocery store, all that was around the Vinegar Hill area. When Vinegar Hill was probably at its peak, it had about 40 businesses along that was in the business corridor and it had hundreds of homes. Um, not all of those businesses were black owned, but the, a good majority of them were. And at that time, some of the covenants and deed restrictions said that Black folks could only own Black businesses in Black neighborhoods. So this was where they could have those businesses. And then you also had a neighborhood that was there surrounding that business district where you had Black home ownership in that area. You had white folks that were landlords and pretty much uh, were slumlords. So for years, Vinegar Hill, along with other communities, other Black communities, had been requesting from the city to be able to get utility services, just like the white communities were receiving in their neighborhood, and they were being denied. So in 1960, the city of Charlottesville called for policies of urban renewal. The city, the chamber, the Charlottesville Redevelopment and Housing Authority, as well as the university, led the charge of essentially targeting all the black communities to be raised or demolished because they were seen as what they were called blighted communities. Ultimately, what, what that meant and translated to back then is that these are places that white people did not want around. And it wasn't as though all of the homes uh, in Vinegar Hill were horrible, deplorable homes. They weren't. The ones that were in the slumlord areas were. And those were typically white-owned areas. However, those were the areas that were utilized 
to create the, the, the reasoning behind why this was necessary. And then what they went on to do is decided, well, we're going to put this to a vote, but we're going to stick a poll tax on it. Poll taxes were essentially a voting fee that began in the 1890s as a legal way to keep African Americans from voting in southern states. Eligible voters were required to pay their poll tax before they could cast a ballot. In the case of Vinegar Hill, the city decided to make that poll tax high enough such that most black people were not going to be able to afford it. It's like a check-in-the-box kind of situation. Sure, the city lets the community vote on it, but ultimately, when you put the poll tax on there, you know that a certain portion of the community that's going to be affected by it is not going to be able to participate. So therefore, you have a rigged game to make sure that the vote goes your way. And so as a result, eminent domain was declared. And so what they did is they took the land, they raised all the homes, meaning they, they tore them down, they tore down the businesses, the majority of them. And then what they offered Black people as an option was to move into public housing. Now, the thing that has to be kept in mind is, you know, some people will say, well, why, why didn't they just move someplace else? Well, let's think about that. During that time period, there was also deed restrictions that said Blacks and whites could not sell to each other. It wasn't a matter that someone could just relocate to another area. If you could not live in that area, you could not live in that area. Also, when you think about the fact that if you were in the middle of paying a mortgage and you had your property snatched from you and you got pennies on a dollar for it, I mean, that was just money lost. Your wealth was snatched from you. And then imagine it even further. What if you owned a business and lived in the same community? You lost your business and you lost your home. And so what that did is that forced a lot of Black people to move away because they saw this as a community that continuously at every turn was going to come and attack their wealth and their stability and their ability to grow and to be seen as equals in this community. That's one of the things that plagues the African-American community still. If African-Americans were children then and know what happened, and they know that not only did land get taken, which was supposed to be used for some public good, it sat there for 20 years untouched. Nothing was done. Nothing was done to make it usable for any type of public good. The value of this Vinegar Hill land today, just the percentage that was owned by African-Americans, is estimated at 80 to $100 million. It was designed specifically to extract wealth mm -hmm. and to demoralize and to ultimately ensure that the resources that folks are competing over, that the Black community was taken out of the equation. And so um, when you look at the fact that a lot of people were then moved into public housing, then you create generational poverty. Generational poverty is a very real thing facing Americans, especially African Americans. According to data from the Survey of Consumer Finances, the typical black family has just one-tenth of the wealth of a typical white one. In 1863, black Americans owned one-half of one percent of the national wealth. Today, it's just over 1.5 percent for roughly the same percentage of the overall population. The cause of that stagnation has largely been invisible, hidden by the assumption of progress after the end of slavery and the achievement of civil rights. But even after slavery, the government has historically not allowed black Americans to build their lives or their own wealth. It has legally denied them the right to vote, get an education, or own homes and businesses. How do we fundamentally change that? How do we shift that? How do we create more opportunity and more avenues for individuals to be able to access that wealth. Well, that's extremely difficult 
when the cost of land in our area is so tremendously high. It can be very overwhelming when you think about how do I live and how do I thrive in the city? Um, because in order for me to be able to go from, you know, making, you know, say $15 an hour, which is the living wage that so many people advocate for, but that's not enough. That allows you to just live as a poor person in Charlottesville. That's all it does without getting a whole lot of assistance in return. And so when you look at a lot of our systems in Charlottesville, they are geared towards the very poor individuals. And so you've got the folks that fall right outside of that. How do they get to the next level? How do they get to a place of ownership? We are a Black-led organization that is specifically focused on the Black community to say, hey, we've got to figure out better ways to ensure that more people are able to enjoy this community in a way that does not break their back in order to be able to do that. That's Yolanda Harrell. She's the CEO of New Hill Development Corporation, a community development corporation focused on building financial resilience, economic opportunity, and affordable housing in the greater Charlottesville Black community. So uh, New Hill really came about because a group of African-American business leaders as well as entrepreneurs were brought together by two council members that were looking at the landscape of developers in Charlottesville and the lack of diversity. Anyone that was focusing on affordable housing, all of that was being led by white men. And so the question came to them was, why is that and why can't we have others that are focused on, that look, that are African-American to focus on this as well, not just in a, you know, a role within the organization, but leading the, leading the work. And then it transitioned in, into this opportunity that existed within the city near, you know, in the Star Hill neighborhood, near the, the former footprint of Vinegar Hill, where the city owns 10 acres of land that is grossly underutilized we need to do something with this. The city was a huge part, well, the city led the way of taking land and homes and businesses from the African-American community of Charlottesville. This would be a great way for the city to be able to start to heal some of those wounds that it had inflicted on its community members in the past. And also looking at it as a way to build wealth in the, within the African-American community. So how do you help people build wealth in a community? We know that home ownership is a huge part of that. Business ownership is a big part of that. We also know that individuals, just their personal income from their salary is a big part of that as well. We also wanted to look beyond just the wealth of financial, but the wealth of social and community and belongingness. When you talk to a lot of African-Americans or Black people in general that live in Charlottesville, either the ones that are from Charlottesville or ones that are new to Charlottesville, one of the recurring themes that you will hear is that we don't have a place to gather. We don't have social outlets. We don't have uh, ways to connect with other individuals that are doing similar things that we're doing or ways to collaborate. It's not that co-working spaces or social halls that are white owned are not, you know, do not extend invitations for participation. But at the end of the day, what we are looking for is our own space where we are free to express ourselves the way we are in a manner that we feel like where we are not being judged, 
people were being understood and a space that was curated with us in mind. A space that was curated with black people in mind is what motivated Yolanda and her team to co-create with Charlottesville residents, the Star Hill Small Area Plan. This is a vision to guide the future development of Charlottesville's neighborhood that would create a more diverse, inclusive, and equitable living space for the African-American community. How are they gonna do that? Well, to start off, they were gonna focus on financial inclusion and financial empowerment. Ultimately, we live in a capitalistic society and we have to better manage our, our position in that and be able to understand the rules of that game and to be able to participate in it. Now, do we know that that system hasn't always worked for us? Absolutely. Is it, you know, does it have racist systems within it? Absolutely. However, there are things that we can do that can allow us to be in a better position to thrive in it. Over the last few years, we've been losing freedoms and a large percentage of it has to do with the increasing wealth of the ultra wealthy. So getting from one rung of the ladder to the next is just a huge leap now. That's Bernard Whitsett. After having spent his career in investment banking, he now serves as a financial coach for an organization called Operation Hope, one of New Hill's most powerful partners. I consider myself to be a advisor, a consultant, but in essence, I'm a coach, I'm an encourager. Bernard works with the New Hill clients to help educate people to take control of their finances. We wanted to focus on helping to create a better understanding around finances and money and the impact of your credit score on not only just your ability to purchase your, your buying power, but also your career. Because many businesses or companies and organizations anymore are running your credit to determine whether or not they're going to hire you. A lot of individuals don't realize that that's going to be part of the equation. And so we don't want individuals to miss out on opportunity as a result of that. I not only talk about how can you reduce your expenses, but I try to get them to look at primarily how can we bring in more income. Bernard also helps residents learn about making investments beneficial for their future, such as home ownership. He helps guide clients on the journey to home ownership from funding their first home to overcoming a variety of barriers, including bad credit or a lack of down payment. So we wanted to look at that. And then the next thing we wanted to look at was economic development. How do we change the social fabric of Charlottesville so that you can see more public facing black owned businesses, but not only public facing, but just more black owned businesses in general. One of the things that is challenging within Charlottesville is that there's a lot of people with great ideas, but rents are so, storefront rents are so high, office space is so extremely high that a lot of those businesses are not able to, to get off the ground. And then there's the other issue of capital. You have micro lenders. The next thing becomes like the banks or becomes other investors. And so the banks oftentimes they don't want to make those loans that are under $100,000. A lot of them have not been interested in making those smaller loans. And so part of our work is to create a way for us to be able to gain more capital, working with philanthropists in our community, working in looking at what are the grant opportunities where we can pool funds together so that we can then be able to invest in businesses that really have the potential to really lift and expand. Oftentimes within the Black community, you may see us predominantly having 
service-oriented business. Nothing wrong with those businesses. I love those businesses. They're needed. However, that doesn't mean that that was all that that business owner ever dreamed about. That's as far as their capital went because they don't have rich family members with a lot of extra money laying around to, to be able to donate. And they also don't have safety nets so that if the business doesn't go as planned, that they have the safety net, again, provided by family or friends that will help them. And so our goal is to say, not only do we want to be able to get the money, but we want to make sure that the educational piece is there, the resources are there for that business, not only to start, but for that business to grow and that's the business to sustain. So how do you work with people to make it seem like these things aren't impossible? Oftentimes the difference between being a failure and being a success is who is your mentor and who is willing to sponsor you and give you a chance. I have a, a gentleman who um, began with me almost a year ago. He was previously incarcerated, but he wanted to make a better life for himself and for his family. So he enrolled in a CDL program, which is a commercial driver's license program. So he could drive you know, the bigger trucks. And he got approved to do that. So then he was able to get hired and get a consist have a consistent paycheck. So he's getting a consistent paycheck, and then he's thinking about how else can I improve my life? So we sit down and we talk about how he can improve his life through improving his credit, by improving his budget. So this gentleman came to me, he probably had around a 565 credit score. Right now he has a score of about 660. So he has gone from borrowing money from payday loans. He's gone to reducing his debt, eliminating collection items. That has improved his credit score. He has started to save, and now he is at a point where he's going to move from credit counseling to the first time homebuyer program this coming month. So this is someone who has been incarcerated. This is someone who was probably told he would never make it. He has now pulled himself up. He sees value in hard work. He sees value in managing his money. And now he's starting to see what was not even considered a dream several years ago of buying a house. It's now, it's almost like this is a real possibility for him. Visual symbols are extremely important. Let's say, we'll just take a, a little girl, for instance. If she never sees a woman doing things that she wants to do, then she may grow up with this idea that women can't do that. Same thing happens. If you don't see other Black people doing things that are very intentional and purposeful with a level of success, then you may tend to feel like, well, that are the only people that can be successful in doing that are people who don't look like us. So we have, we wanted to be extremely intentional because there's so many successful black people, not just from a, a job perspective, but from a, a mental, emotional, a health perspective. With all that's going on, how is New Hill empowering African-American communities right now? Our goal is to create a pipeline that allows you to be able to go mainstream. 
but let's start in an incubator. Let's get you a smaller space that is shared by others where you can have retail space, co-working space. You could have a uh, your own kitchen or access to a kitchen where you can sell your wares, but you can do it for much less than what you can do on your own if we do it together. And then by then taking that and helping you grow and getting the systems in place and getting access to the capital you need. So now when you're ready to get that Main Street storefront space, you're, you're, you're ready to go. But one of the other things that COVID has taught us is that we also need to be thinking about all the ways that we can earn money, right? What does our online presence look like? What is our what does e-commerce look like for your business? How do they how do they do business with you, right? And so so we're 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 looking at this as we have got to to be creative. We've got to also look at what are other assets out there that individuals can own besides a home that will give them passive income coming to their household that allows them to build wealth. Do they necessarily need to own a home in this community? Let's maybe look at some other communities where it's a lot cheaper to purchase a home and perhaps you become a landlord instead. And so you buy a home in a city where it's a lot more affordable based on your current level of income. And then the passive income that you get from renting that particular unit out in a different city now helps to subsidize the, your cost of living here in Charlottesville, because this may be ultimately where you want to live, but it may not ultimately be where you can afford to live and live comfortably. If people are making a decent wage and they're able to live in a decent place, there's little reason to go out and try to steal something because all your basic needs are being met. And in fact, some of your wants are being met as well. So now you're having people that are making a decent wage. They're now creating ownership. So they have skin in the game. So they're in a neighborhood where they actually own something. They may own the townhouse. They may own the condo. So there, there's going to be a totally different incentive on how to care for the property and how to look out for your neighbors. There's going to be less of a need for policing. How is the situation we're seeing right now with protests and the pandemic magnifying the work that needs to be done to help African-American communities or other communities of color in general? I think overall, it, it, it also gives us a, some time to think about what are some of, the, some of the blind spots that we have on things that we need to be thinking about when you see yeah. you know, all the health disparities and, and how the Black community has been just affected tremendously by not only the, the, the diseases or the virus itself, but also, you know, having to be those frontline workers that have to go to work because they work at the grocery store, because they work in spaces that are absolutely needed. And then also they have been the, the largest group that has been unemployed as well. You know, they are the people that make sure that the subways are running on time and that they're clean. They are the janitorial staff that are sanitizing the building that we go to so that we are safe in that building. They are the food service industry. This moment that so many are experiencing, I am happy that it is a wake up moment for those who are asleep and hopefully they don't fall back to sleep and that they become really, really intentional about learning what it is that black people, especially, uh, but then other, other communities of color, what they go through in our country 
and how our experiences are extremely different. You know, when you look back at history, you've had these continuums of setbacks that has continued to be an obstacle for equity in our society. I have witnessed protests of previous eras, and this is the first truly what I call multicultural protest. Because what I see is a synergy of ideas and viewpoints that have been missing for so many years. And because of this synergy that is being created, taking different viewpoints and evaluating those viewpoints on their merits, I think that we'll end up in a better place. We're gonna end up with better things. We will end up with better light bulbs. We'll end up with better ridges. You know, all that is gonna be better because we got different cultures looking at it together from different perspectives. Regardless as to whether one considers themselves black or white, if they have skin of hue or melanin, they should not be a target in this society. The issues of racism and social inequality that have been brought into the limelight through the horrible deaths of Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery, George Floyd, and even the events such as the KKK rallies in Charlottesville and countless other stories of racial injustice, all of this just magnifies the work that must be done to protect and empower the people in our society. Thank you guys so much for listening. That wraps up another epidose of Serotonin. Once again, my guests today were Yolanda Harrell and Bernard Whitsitt. You can go check out New Hill Development Corporation's work by heading to their website, which is newhill.org, linked in the description. Please be sure to support their cause. I put a link in the description where you can donate to them to support their work in creating opportunities of upward mobility for the greater African-American community in Charlottesville. Sarah Tunin is recorded, edited, and produced by myself. If you like this show, you can find the podcast online at teach.fm, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, and iTunes. Please be sure to subscribe to the podcast and be sure to rate it and leave a comment to share what you enjoyed or how I should improve. It helps out a ton. And if you've already done that, thank you. Please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member who you think will get something out of it. You can also follow the show updates on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or even on my website, which is also linked. Until next time, this is Korean Thomas. And as always, thanks for tuning in.